and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Welcome. Welcome to my study. Please, have a seat. Now, around you, you will notice the many volumes from which I compile these talks. And uh, here to my right is my domestic, who will be reading any directly quoted passages I refer to in the course of things. His name is Wilkinson, and uh, he's been gifted with a particularly fine voice, particularly well-suited for such uh, narrative duties. Pleased to make your acquaintance, and thank you, sir. And uh, perhaps you may also be wondering about this box here before me. It is here to offer a little musical clue to tonight's topic. If I just open it here. Wilkinson, I would imagine you recognize that tune. The tune? Yes. Sorry, I can't say it's familiar. Oh, now think back. Let me play it again. Not sure about this one, sir. Just not ringing a bell. Ringing a bell. Very good, very good. Why don't you tell the audience here about those bells? Bells. Yes, if you could uh, paint the picture for us, a little scene from your childhood in England. Uh, make it vivid. England? And it, yes, uh, a, a game you might have played with other children involving a particular rhyme sung to this tune. Sir, uh, uh, I'm American. I was born in Maryland. We actually even discussed my family home after my mother's passing when I had to fly to deal with the issues around the property in Annapolis, in Maryland. Well, that, that may have been the discussion at the time, but uh, frankly, it could also have been a cover story if if you grew up in England. I mean, I always just thought that from the way you speak. I really think that... I'm not saying you sound English now, but maybe that when your family first came to this country, maybe you attempted to ease the transition by affecting a Yankee accent. Everybody wants to fit in, at least at first. Anyway, I've always commented on your lovely speaking voice. Sir, I've worked for you for nearly 20 years. I suppose I hadn't specifically asked where, but I thought you were from London. I thought you just didn't want to tell me, so I just gave up trying to get to the bottom of it. It's nothing I hold against you. It's just 
a theory. It's worked for me. I wanted you to feel comfortable here. Well, uh, I do. I am comfortable. Do what it takes. Do whatever it takes. It's just when you say ring a bell, it sounded like a little nod to London because the song, you know, it's about London, the church bells of London, but no sense pushing. I'm simply trying to illustrate, to form an introduction to all this, to what we're supposed to be recording. That is episode six, Lost Heads. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this podcast generally examines the intersection of folklore with the horror genre or sometimes horrific history. I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for a new book along similar lines. So. The lyric to this old children's song... Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clement's. You owe me five farthings, say the bells of St. Martin's. When will you pay me, say the bells of Old Bailey. When I grow rich, say the bells of Shoreditch. When will that be, say the bells of Stepney. I do not know, say the bells of Bow. Here comes a candle to light you to bed, and here comes a chopper to chop off your head. Chip-chop, chip-chop, the last man is dead. A folksy little rhyme dating back to the 1800s, but it's the last couplet, of course, that's of most interest to horror fans. Uh, The chop-chop-chopping helps describe the uh, accompanying game. It's more or less London Bridge with children uh, in facing pairs, clasping hands, and forming an arch under which uh, the other players duck as the song is sung. The last to pass through during the chopping verse is caught as the arms fall in mock decapitation. Last episode, I mentioned the 1973 folk horror classic The Wicker Man, promising that I would likely mention it again before long, and So I will, or am, as there is a similar beheading game played out in the film's last moments, just before the uh, flaming climax. Uh, Oh, Jesus Christ! Here, the uh, lemons and oranges routine is combined with traditional longsword dancing, which quite often includes choreography in which five swords are interlocked in the shape of a pentagram. Uh, And rather than children's arms falling, it's these swords that threaten our protagonist's neck. Now, the reason I've been thinking of chopped heads is because the Feast of John the Baptist is quickly approaching on June 24th, which is also the traditional Midsummer Day, the longest day of the year, which I'm also taking as an excuse to perhaps run a little longer on this episode. Anyway, St. John's Night, or Midsummer Eve, is particularly rich in traditions, many of which are similar to uh, observances attached to St. George's Eve or even Valpurgis Night. Uh, 
So I thought instead this year we'd focus on the head chopping associated with the biblical prophet. For those raised without benefit of religious education, uh, John was a prophet who foretold the coming of Jesus and ended up with his head on a platter thanks to his criticism of uh, King Herod II's uh, divorce and then therefore illegitimate marriage to Herodias. Uh, the incident happens during a drunken birthday party gone bad uh, for John, primarily, during which Herodias's daughter, Salome, does a little hoochie-coochie dubbed The Dance of the Seven Veils by Oscar Wilde. Go dance. <laughs> now, Herod is more than pleased by this shimmying and offers Salome in reward anything she requests. And her mother, who is apparently still stinging from John's criticism, uh, steps in and encourages her daughter to request the head of the Baptist. Depending on which movie you're watching. Now, uh, first century historian Josephus adds an interesting tale of divine and poetic justice, uh, writing that later, as Salome is crossing the river Sicorus in winter and the ice gave way for her such that her body was in the water that her head trapped beneath the ice. It was similar to how she once had danced with her feet upon the ground but now flailing helplessly in the icy water. Thus she was trapped until the time when the sharp ice cut through her neck. During my Krampus research, I uh, found Herodias often mentioned also as a sort of queen of the witches, uh, leading her company in nocturnal flight. One of the first uh, to articulate this is a uh, 12th century poet, uh, Nivardus, of the Belgian city of Ghent. Uh, typical of medieval writers, he conflates Herodias and Salome, uh, uh, understanding the latter as uh, the one who had uh, performed the dance and is uh, smitten with John the Baptist, attempting to kiss uh, the bloody head with uh, unforeseen results. The head miraculously moved away and hissed at her with such force that she was blown up into the air and out through the skylight. Ever since then, she has been driven through the skies by John's implacable anger. At night, she perches on oaks and hazel trees, and a third part of mankind is subjected to her sway. But just as John the Baptist's head in legends was um, alleged to experience a sort of second life, albeit a brief one after its uh, severance from the body, uh, Many other saints are, have been said to miraculously survive decapitation. In fact, legends of relatively nonplussed saints surviving decapitation and picking up their own heads and walking about is such a, well, relatively common occurrence that this category of martyred saints has its own name. That is, cephalophore, from the Greek for head carrier. Perhaps the most famous cephalophore, and one quite naturally invoked against headaches, is Denis, third century bishop and patron of the city of Paris, who picked up and carried his 
continuously preaching ahead, sermonizing for the entire seven-mile walk from Momart to his place of burial. Another saint, whose head at least went on living briefly after decapitation, is Saint Edmund, 9th century king of East Anglia, or Edmund the Martyr. Uh, Edmund found his martyrdom at the hands of the Danes, supposedly because he would not renounce Christ. His enemies tried a few things to encourage this renunciation, including shooting him so full of arrows, so numerous that they, in the words of the legend, appeared like the bristles of a hedgehog. Uh, eventually, Edmund's tormentors uh, lopped off the king's head and, adding insult to injury, tossed it deep into the woods to prevent Christian burial. According to legend, his followers, who for some reason presumed the head might still be communicative, uh, entered the forest calling out for the head, asking where it was. Eventually, their calls were answered. Here, 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 cried the head, and the men find it cradled between the paws of a supernaturally gentle wolf, understood to be protecting the tasty morsel from other less godly forest animals. Then there is St. Winifred, daughter of a 7th century chieftain in South Wales. After refusing advances of a local leader eager to despoil her virginity, she was beheaded and where her head stopped rolling, a spring magically appeared. The lifeless head then somehow rejoined uh, Winifred's body and uh, she was restored to life. This is a little more unusual. She went on to live the rest of her natural or unnatural days uh, with head in, in place. Uh, the chieftain, however, the one at fault for all this, was cursed and swallowed up by the earth. And uh, the site where the well is said to have sprung up still operates today and is known as the Lords of Wales. And another well saint, the 9th century English uh, Saint uh, Framund of Framund's Well, uh, after his decapitation, uh, Framund was unhappy with his untidy, bloodied appearance. Uh, he picked up his severed head, went to this well, uh, washed up the head and body, reattached the two, and then lay down to die in a more proper state. We are standing by a wish, a well. The connection between severed heads and wells may have to do with the pre-Christian sacrificial practice that uh, gave rise to the modern wishing well traditions. Stories from Celtic lands often associate wells with offerings of severed heads uh, stone replicas of severed human heads, uh, either deposited in wells or as decorative uh, embellishments, are not uncommon. And archaeologists have found actual human skulls in wells in London, Herefordshire, and Bedfordshire. Skulls have also been used as ritual drinking vessels, a fairly modern survival being the skull of St. Talaris, uh, until recently used to drink from his uh, holy well in the Welsh county of uh, Pembrokeshire. While these all may be lovely thoughts to hold in mind next time you flip a coin into a wishing well, what about the wicker man? Hasn't it been several minutes already since I've mentioned that? Uh, the notion of heads in wells, however, does provide us another link via the Elizabethan English dramatist George Peel and his play 
the old wives' tale. Uh, among the many songs, spells, and fairy stories, it includes a scene in which wish-granting heads emerge from a magic well, singing, Fair maid, white and red, comb me smooth and stroke my head, and every hair a sheaf shall be, and every sheaf a golden tree. Diehard fans of the film ever in question will recognize this as a fragment of Willow's song, a sort of musical spell sung by the innkeeper's daughter to the pious inspector Howie sent to investigate murder on this Hebridean island. fine bit of sport, uh, head-chopping sport, as English might say, is suggested by the Green Knight in the 14th century Arthurian poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. In the story, a Christmas feast at Camelot is interrupted by the intrusion of a mysterious green figure, not a knight clad in green armor, as you might imagine, but depending on your version, there are a couple versions of this story. Uh, either green-skinned or dressed all in green and carrying a holly bough in one hand and an axe in the other. It being Christmas, uh, he suggests a game, a challenge. He will allow any of the assembled knights one blow to strike off his head. In exchange, the challenger, in a year's time, will have his chance to return the blow. Gawain steps forward and easily strikes off the stranger's head at which point the headless stranger, like any good cephalophore, gets up and reclaims the head and disappears. The following Christmas, after other trials orchestrated by the Green Knight, uh, Gawain's encounter with the stranger results only in a grazing mock blow administered by the Green Knight, who praises Gawain for his successful completion of the ordeal. This rather mysterious work, of course, has been adopted in various modern forms, including a well-reviewed 1971 production on the London stage, which included a sword dance mock decapitation dream sequence based on the same model, the Grenocide sword dance, used in The Wicker Man. Sean Connery is the mysterious Green Knight. All I seek is good sport. On the other side of the spectrum is 1984's The Sword of the Valiant. Uh, in it, Gawain is played by an actor outfitted in, in what can really only be described as a He-Man wig, and the Green Knight is Sean Connery, who, apparently having learned little from his costume fiasco of ten years prior in Zardoz, uh, Don's his own flowing wig, green makeup, glitter, and a costume that looks like a cross between a samurai warrior and a Christmas tree. The film did not do well, and as a result, we can only assume uh, some 
Offstage heads did roll. Chop, 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 chop. Fighting the forces of magic and sorcery, Sir Gawain is faced with unearthly dangers. John Connor and Miles O'Keefe in Sword of the Valiant. Well, now, just to mix it up a bit, Wilkinson is here going to talk about his favorite headless ghost. Well, there's been so many interesting figures, but uh, I just presumed this one would be included as a popular... Oh, yes, he's very popular. I wasn't saying he wasn't. Just go ahead. Of course. The most famous headless ghost of all may indeed be the headless horseman created by Washington Irving in his popular story of 1820, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, I was just I was just thinking he's been he's been covered a lot, but uh, it's no harm. I it, if it's short, just ah, uh, shall I go on? Sure, I'll I'll see what I can do with some sound effects. We'll we'll keep it fresh. Don't worry. The story has been adapted for film and television dozens of times, beginning with a 1922 silent film starring Will Rogers as Ichabod Crane. Most of us are well acquainted with Ichabod Crane and the legend of Ichabod Crane. While Irving makes it makes it quite clear that the phantom embraced by local legend was merely the creation of a shape loomed up out of the night. The headless horseman needs a head with a hip, hip and clippity clop. He's out looking for a head. It was merely the creation of a jealous prankster competing romantically. Soldier had his head blown off. Crane, many adaptations appease our natural appetite. For the supernatural by treating the specter as genuine. Thanks in part to a 1997 name change from North Terrytown to By a cannonball. Sweet Hollow. Every Halloween, the village Irving chose the legend uh, of as his location is mobbed with visitors, particularly the cemetery. Difference of opinion. And that was an excellent job, Wilkinson. Thank you so very much. There is also a somewhat well-known uh, headless ghost of Scottish fame. Uh, Ewan McLean of the Isle of Mull, one of the uh, Hebridean islands off Scotland's northwest coast. Ewan was slain in 1538 in a family battle over property rights. Uh, he was beheaded on his horse, which was said to have charged off in a panic, galloping along several miles with its headless rider still saddled. Uh, legend has it that when the corpse was returned to its home, Ewan's dog suffered such a shock its hair fell out on the spot. Uh, sightings of the ghosts are particularly ominous for members of the McLean clan for whom the headless horseman is said to portend death. Ewan had received his uh, own warning regarding death. On the day before the battle, he encountered a fairy woman washing bloody clothes in a brook. He asked her to predict how he would fare in the impending battle, to which she gave a curious reply. 
the next day at breakfast, she said, should Ewan's servant forget to bring out butter with the meal, Ewan would be killed. While preparing for the battle, Ewan forgot all about the prophecy until breakfast the following day when he realized, well, it's a little more than dry toast he would be worrying about that day. While we're on the topic of Scots and decapitation, it seems only fit to mention Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, whose skull watch I remarked upon in episode 3. Her execution for her part in the plot to assassinate Elizabeth I was a notoriously messy affair, therefore something we really mustn't leave out. On February 7, 1587, Mary ascended the black draped scaffold in the Great Hall of Fotheringay Castle. Blindfolded with a white veil embroidered in gold, she knelt awaiting the blade. But that first blow only grazed the back of her head, and Mary was heard to groan. The second blow also did not cleanly remove the head, but with a third, the last bit of sinew was severed. The executioner raised the head over the crowd. Some accounts also have Mary's lips still moving in some sort of agonized prayer at this point. In any case, the head slipped from the executioner's hand, fell to the planks and rolled away, and he was left holding the red wig Mary used to cover her actual short gray hair. At this point, Mary's Sky Terrier, which had apparently accompanied her to the scaffold, hidden among her voluminous skirts, emerged in a panic, skittering about the stage, becoming drenched in blood, and only leaving Mary's body when removed by force. Of course, when we think of England and executions of queens or royalty, it's not Fotheringay Castle we think of, but of the Bloody Tower, the Tower of London, where 93 beheadings were performed over the years, and where another queen, Anne Boleyn, lost her head. In the Tower of London, large as life, large as life. the ghost of Anne Boleyn walks, I declare. He declares. For Anne Boleyn was once King Henry's wife. King Henry's wife. Until he made the headsman bob her hair With her head tucked underneath her arm She walks the bloody tower With her head tucked underneath her arm At the midnight hour she comes to Around the same time, legends of Arthur and his court were evolving. There arose stories of another mythic king and giant, a figure of Welsh mythology, Bran the Blessed. His story, or stories, recorded in the 13th century Mabignogian collection, are rather involved, but to maintain our focus on decapitation, more simply, uh, the core of his story begins... After Bran receives word that his sister Branwen, given to the Irish king in marriage, is being ill-treated, and Bran sails with his armies to Ireland. Unfortunately, Bran had previously gifted the king with a magic cauldron that restores life to the dead, and this gives the Irish something of an advantage. Uh, 
Bran's men are beaten back, leaving only seven survivors, and Bran himself mortally wounded. And here comes the head chopping. Realizing that he will not survive, and that his men must retreat to Britain, Bran helpfully suggests that his dying body be left behind and only his head be taken back. Obligingly, his soldiers decapitate him, but the head continues to live, ch chatting aboard the ship on the journey back. The seven survivors then spend seven years feasting in Bran's hall, all the while being entertained by the talking head. After they move the party to another location, and it goes another 80 years, uh, unaware of the passage of time inside the hall until a door is opened and the spell of timeless obliviousness ends. And Bran's head at that point finally falls silent, though we couldn't actually say it has died because it is still magically potent and is therefore brought to a place called the White Hill where it's believed the White Tower or the Tower of London would eventually would be built and it's uh, buried there, facing France as a magic talisman, fending off invasion from the continent. Now, the writers of classical antiquity were appalled and intrigued by this uh, Celtic fascination with decapitated heads and head hunting. Uh, a first century Greek uh, writer and historian Strabo records of the Celts. There is also that custom, barbarous and exotic, which attends most of the northern tribes. When they depart from battle, they hang the heads of their enemies from the necks of their horses, and when they have brought them home, nail the spectacle to the entrance of their houses. And Strabo's contemporary Greek historian Sicilus writes, They cut off the heads of enemies slain in battle and attach them to the necks of their horses. The blood-stained spoils they hand over to their attendants, and striking up a song of victory, they nail up these first fruits upon their houses, just as do those who lay low wild animals in certain kinds of hunting. They embalm in cedar oil the heads of the most distinguished enemies, and preserve them carefully in a chest, and display them with pride to strangers. In cases where it was not convenient to bring back the entire head, a more compact concentration of the head's spiritual energy could be made by mixing gray matter scooped from the skull of the enemy uh, and mixing it with uh, lime into a cement-like substance rolled into a ball and fired with a sling. These were called brain balls. There is even a tale of King Connor MacNessa of Ulster who is struck on the battlefield by one of these, uh, which physicians said could not safely be removed, so it was sewn into place with golden thread matching the king's hair. But that is not the end of the story. According to Myths and Legends of the Celtic Race, written by Thomas Rolston in 1911, Seven years afterwards, Connor saw the sun darken at noonday, and he summoned his druid to tell him the cause of the omen. The druid, in a magic trance, tells him of a hill in a distant land on which stand three crosses with a human form nailed to each, and one of them is like the immortals. Is he a malefactor, then asks Connor? Nay, says the druid, 
but the Son of the living God, and he reveals to the king the story of the death of Christ. Connor breaks out in fury, and drawing his sword, he hacks at the oak trees of the sacred grove, crying, Thus would I deal with his enemies. When, with the excitement and the exertion, the brain ball bursts from his head, and he falls dead. Now, uh, this idea of magical wells and heads prophesying or giving advice also happens to be central to Germanic myth. And uh, here specifically, we'd be talking about uh, Mimir, a god known for his deep wisdom and deep memory. Uh, He's also the owner or the spirit of the well at the base of the world tree Yggdrasil. During the war between the gods, the Aesir and the Vanir tribes, Mimir ends up in a hostage exchange. Uh, at some point, uh, the Vanir decide that they have been cheated in the exchange and decapitate Mimir. Not to worry, Odin takes the head and embalms it in uh, certain spices and chants certain spells over it, which not only preserves the head but restores it to life. Henceforth, Odin's great wisdom is supported by the advice given by the severed head and the water drunk daily from his well. Uh, the price of this daily source of enlightenment, by the way, was Odin's eye torn out and dropped into Mimir's well as a sacrifice. Earlier, I failed to mention that Brand's full and proper Welsh name actually translates as Blessed Raven or Blessed Crow, which brings to mind an interesting connection with Odin and his ever-present companions, the Ravens Hugin and Munin, Thought and Memory. What may be even more interesting is that for centuries Ravens have been officially kept at the Tower of London, fluttering about, as it were, over the burial site of the head of their giant namesake king. Thought, Thought and Speaking of Odin, god of sorcerers and of oracular heads, one last tale of magic, namely that of the brazen head, a medieval legend of a head fabricated of brass and magically endowed not only with the gift of speech, but of prophecy. Most uh, famously, it was uh, Roger Bacon, the 13th century English philosopher and Franciscan friar and student of alchemy who was uh, supposed to have created one of these. One version of the story, uh, a pamphlet from 1652, describes Bacon's process undertaken with the help of his assistant, Friar Bungie. After building the head, the two friars are not sure how to proceed, the pamphlet explains. They read many books, but not finding any clue to what they sought, they concluded to raise a spirit and to learn from him what they could not gain by their own studies. They prepared all things necessary and went out one evening to a wood nearby and after making use of many ceremonies, they spake the words of conjunction and the devil straight obeyed and appeared to them. The devil instructs them in the proper magical procedure and the instructions are followed. 
Uh, after three weeks' wait, the men have grown weary in their uh, round-the-clock vigil. Uh, Bacon goes to sleep, charging his assistant, Miles, with the task of observing the head, which, after some time, does speak, eventually uttering the enigmatic words, Time is... While a philosopher might have found in this sentence some gnomic grist for the mill, uh, Miles is... Uh, simpler and decides to wait for a more interesting revelation before waking his master. The head speaks again. Time was. Still unimpressed, Miles mocks the head for what he sees as useless prattle and decides not to wake his master. Then, one more utterance. Time. Has passed. The head fell to the ground, then followed a terrible noise, strange flashes of fire, so that Miles was half dead with fear. At the noise, the two friars awoke and wanted to see the room full of smoke. But when that vanished, they perceived the brazen head lying broken on the ground. When Miles explains that he hadn't found the miraculous utterances worth waking his master, he nearly gets the beating he deserves, but Bacon softens a bit, choosing instead to merely magically strike him dumb for the space of one month. Now, before Bacon was associated with this tale, uh, there were legends of the 12th century Pope Sylvester II uh, having created such a head. Sylvester was known for his uh, enthusiasm for Greco-Roman philosophy and scientific learning and was believed to have dabbled in Arabic magic and transmitted through text picked up in Andalusia. His head would only speak when spoken to, uh, replying only with a simple yes or no. There's a bit more on Sylvester beyond uh, the brazen head. Uh, Unfriendly rumor mongers also spoke of a female demon or succubus named Meridiana with whom Sylvester was said to have made a pact. Uh, either the demon or the head was also supposed to have prophesied that if Sylvester ever held mass in Jerusalem, the devil would destroy him. Now, while avoiding that city, Sylvester, however, did read mass in Rome at the site named the Basilica of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem. And that was close enough. The devil showed up in a flash, sinking his claws into Sylvester's flesh, tearing out his eyeballs and tossing them to his demons as playthings. Uh, later, the penitent Sylvester was supposed to have cut out his own tongue and hacked off his own hands in acts of extreme repentance. One final legend associated with this legend-rich pope, an omen of papal death. It is said that Sylvester's bones in their crypt in Rome, when a pope is near the end of his life, will rattle. Just as these rattling bones indicate the end of our podcast. 
I'd like to thank Wilkinson for uh, reading our quoted material and, as always, for remembering the butter. More than happy to oblige. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue to listen to future episodes. Shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. We also have a Patreon link where you can donate to support this rather laborious undertaking. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast, um, our soundtracks, uh, book downloads, a signed glamour shot of our friend Wilkinson, suitable for framing. Uh, The show is written and produced by me, Al Reitnauer. Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening.